0: has run away from home because he feels responsible for the death of his father, the king, Mufasa. But while he's been living a carefree life with no worries, running away from his past, his home has been ravaged by his evil Uncle Scar. But finally, Simba is confronted by his father in a vision, and his father tells him, Simba, you have forgotten me. You have forgotten who you are, and so you have forgotten me. Remember who you are. You are my son. And the one true king. Remember who you are. So, part of the reason that this is such a profound and moving and and, and memorable moment in the movie is that we have all experienced times when we have also forgotten who we are. And we've all had to be reminded, sometimes uncomfortably so, of who we actually are. And that's precisely what in this psalm, what the psalmist Asaph is doing precious truth is being passed on to the next generation, as it says in verse 7, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God. The danger here is that these things will be left in the past, that they will be forgotten and not remembered. And if they are forgotten, then we can no longer really see who we are. And that's precisely what has happened before uh, in the stories that he tells in this psalm. Every time things went awfully wrong. Matthew, in the New Testament, also uses Asaph's words in his gospel to explain why Jesus also spoke in parables. Matthew chapter 13. So both Jesus and Asaph are reminding us of great truths that can be learned from the dark halls of history. And both of them are speaking to us in parables, and they do that because our tendency is to reject things that make us feel uncomfortable. Even if those things are truths that can show us who we truly are, even if those things are truths that can save us. And if we're really, really honest, we don't just accidentally forget the truth, do we? But we purposefully and consistently put it out of our minds and suppress it. Or if we can't really suppress the truth, then we try to run and hide from it, like Simba did. And so just like Simba, we have run away, and we have forgotten our father. We have forgotten our home, and we have even forgotten who we are. So I hope this morning that you will hear both Asaph and Jesus speaking from the Word, calling to you, remember who you are. Stop forgetting, stop suppressing and hiding from the truth. Listen and I will teach you great and wonderful things, truths that may feel dark and heavy, but that can also save you. So what exactly are the truths that we can learn from this psalm and that we need to remember that, this, that Asaph is reminding us of? So there are two central truths here that I want to share with you, the two things that we must not forget. We must remember, first of all, that we are sinners and we must remember that we've received God's mercy. We must remember that we are sinners. We must remember that we've received God's mercy. So first of all, we have to remember that we're sinners. By that I mean that we have failed to live by God's laws. We have failed to love God. We have failed to love others. We have been faithless to God in spite of all that he has done for us. And what we need to see here is that Israel's repetitive pattern of sin and failure is our repetitive pattern of sin and failure as well. So when Asaph tells us that he's telling a parable in verse 2, what he means is that the whole of Israel's history is a story in which we should all see our own reflection. And that's why he can admonish his audience in verse 8 to not be like their fathers. He wanted the Israelites who sang and who read this psalm to see their own sin and the sins of their ancestors and then to run from that sin. And we should read it in exactly the same way. Seeing our own sin and failure and the sins and failures of the Israelites. Learning from their mistakes and running from that sin. So let's take a couple minutes to see exactly what sins are listed here in the psalm. So first of all we see in verse 9. The sin of the Ephraimites who turned back in the day of battle. And this is most likely a reference to Israel's failure in the days of Joshua to complete the conquest of the promised land. Asaph explains in verses 10 and 11 that this sin broke the covenant they had made with God and it happened because, here's the reason why they did it, they forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them. And then verses 12 to 31 elaborate on those wonders and those works that God did. He tells the story of the Israelites wandering in the wilderness and all that God did there to care for them and provide for them. Then the second major sin that Asaph tells us about is when Israel tested God and they rebelled against him in the wilderness. Again, we're told in verse 42 that the reason they sinned against God in the wilderness is that they did not remember the power, God's power, or the day when he redeemed them from the foe, when he performed his signs in Egypt. And Asaph again tells the story, tells the story of the exodus, of the plagues, of crossing the Red Sea, and of Israel's entrance into the promised land as God's driving nations out in front of them. And then that brings us up to the third major sin in verses 56 through 58, which is Israel's idolatry, repeated idolatry, in the time of the judges and the judgment that God inflicted on them for that. So, how is that like our sin? I mean, in all honesty, how is our sin like Israel's sin? So they may look different externally in how things have played out in terms of our context and their context, but our sin and their sin share the same root Causes. Just like them. We have forgotten. What God has done for us. We have not remembered. We have forgotten. But also just like them. We repeatedly fail. To believe. In God's promises. And in his provision for us. We don't believe him. Look at verse 22. They did not believe. Believe. In God. Did not trust in his saving power. Verse 32. In spite of all this. They still sinned. Despite his wonders. They did not. Believe. Now. You may not consider. Unbelief to be that flagrant. Of a sin. I mean it doesn't get as much attention. But I assure you. I assure you that. The Bible and God considers unbelief to be very, very serious. In fact, unbelief could, be, could said, be said to be the greatest, most offensive, most flagrant sin that there is. And this is true for two reasons. First of all, in some way, all sin can be traced back to unbelief. It is the root sin behind all other sins. Some examples of this, that we lie... And we cheat because we don't believe that God wants us to be truthful because he is the truth. We are fearful or we are anxious because we don't believe that God is powerful enough to care for us or good enough to provide, to know what is best for us. We grow proud because we don't believe that God really is the one true God. We would rather be gods ourselves. We engage in lustful and adulterous behavior because we don't believe that God made marriage to be holy and to be a reflection of his own nature and to be for our good. So in many ways, unbelief, is the if you want to put it in medical terms, is the really root disease. And all these other sins are just manifestations or symptoms in which we're showing all the ways we don't believe in God and don't believe in His Word. But we also disobey, we rebel against our parents or against other authorities because we don't believe that God has placed them where they are in authority over us. But most grievously, grievously of all, the worst thing of all, is that we reject God's love and mercy and kindness toward us because we don't believe we really need it. And we don't believe that God will actually give it. And this is the second reason that unbelief is the worst sin that there is, because unbelief is what causes us to reject the gospel. So unbelief is the one sin that will not be forgiven. Because by our unbelief, we reject the one way that we will be saved. And it will lead to our just and fair condemnation before God. And here's the scary part. Here's the scary part. So listen. You and I cannot, in and of ourselves, make ourselves believe. We can't do it. Ever since the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden, when they sinned by acting on their unbelief, we are, as their descendants, by nature, unbelieving. And we can't change that. But, and here's the wonderful news, God can. God can give us new believing hearts and minds. Hearts that believe. So I implore you this morning to remember that you're a sinner and I urge you to ask God to change your heart, to give you a new heart, a heart that it desires and is willing to believe in Him and to believe in His Word. Confess to Him your failures and your forgetfulness. Confess to Him your unbelief. And run to Him. And ask Him for a new heart. Run to God because, and this is the second thing that we have to remember, we have received God's mercy. And we see God's mercy repeatedly displayed in this psalm. In fact, the majority of the psalm is a list of God's amazing provisions for his people, even in the face of their rebellions against him and of their forgetfulness and unbelief. Verse 23 reminds us that when Israel complained in the wilderness asking for food, God restrained his judgment and sent them manna and quail to eat. Verses 65 and 66 tell of when God restored Israel after their sin and judgment during the time of the judges. This is most clearly spelled out, though, in verses 38 and 39. Yet He, God, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained His anger often and did not stir up all His wrath. Why does God hold back? Why is He so merciful and compassionate? Why does He do this? Verse 39 tells us, He remembered that they were but flesh. A wind that passes and comes not again. Did you catch that? God is the one who remembers. You and I will forget. We do this all the time. But God always remembers. He does not forget. And he will not forget to show us mercy. And there are two things we see here that cause God to show us mercy. First of all, as we just saw in verse 39... He remembers that we are but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. By that, what that means is that we are weak, we are frail, we are feeble creatures, and we are so infinitely weaker and smaller than God that the prophet Isaiah says, all the nations and rulers of the earth are like a drop in a bucket or dust on the scales. That's how much smaller we are than God. And God also told Adam after the fall, and this also applies to us, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So God knows that we cannot accomplish all that he has commanded, and, he cannot, and that we cannot perform any better than what we've already done, or for that matter, any better than what the Israelites did. And because God remembers this, he shows us mercy. He takes pity on us. Because in reality, from his perspective, we are also oh very, very pitiful. Secondly, the second thing that causes God to show mercy is that God remembers His covenant. So to clarify what that means, a covenant is a solemn vow that God gave to His people and it secured their relationship to Him and it was sealed by special signs. This happened multiple times in the Bible. And a marriage is a great example of this. Um, In fact, it was actually seven years ago today that my wife Lauren and I stood before our friends and family uh, and before God, and we exchanged vows of love and friendship and faithfulness. We made a covenant. We also exchanged rings that were signs or tokens of the covenant that we had made. And God does the same thing with his people. He does the same thing with us. And like a good husband, God never fails to perfectly and faithfully keep his covenant. Psalm 105.8 says he remembers his covenant forever, the word that he commanded for a thousand generations. Psalm 106.45 says for their sake he remembered his covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. I want to tell you this morning one of the most important things that you need to understand if you are a Christian God does not love you because of how good you are or because you're just good enough. He doesn't love you because you've been faithful to Him or at least done your best to be. He doesn't even love you because you're good at remembering how much He loves you. God loves you because He made a promise to love you. God has made a solemn vow, a covenant which he has been spoken in eternity past and sealed by the blood that he shed on the cross for you, a covenant to redeem and to love his people faithfully. No matter the cost, no matter the consequences, and no matter your or my performance. He does not expect us to keep his covenant perfectly, but he vows that he will be wholly faithful to that covenant nonetheless. And this is such an essential thing to grasp, because it sets us free. It sets us free to love and to follow and obey God in response to all he has done for us. It sets us free because we're no longer burdened by the weight of our own poor, pathetic performance, by our own forgetfulness and unbelief. A great illustration of this in the the Christian classic, The Pilgrim's Progress, tells an allegorical story of Christian uh, who goes on a journey from the city of destruction through many dangers and adventures to the celestial city. And at one point, Christian and his companion, hopeful, they wander off the path, and they're caught by the giant despair. And despair takes them to his stronghold, which is Doubting Castle, where they're imprisoned, they're beaten and tortured, to the point that they no longer are sure of their salvation. And Christian and hopeful remain there, in doubt and despair until Christian remembers that he has been given a key and the name of the key is promise. And with the help of the key, they managed to escape Doubting Castle and the giant despair. And what we need to remember is that God's covenant with us is His promise for us. And He gives it to us freely. two further applications of this of being able to, of understanding God's covenant love for us is that first of all he's also called us into a covenant community. So within the church we ought to love and care for, serve and bear with one another with the same covenantal kind of love that God has shown to us. If we truly understand that God loves us because he's committed to love us, because he made a covenant to love us in spite of our many faults, then we will also love each other because we have made a commitment to love each other in spite of our many faults. Covenant love is the glue that holds Christian community, Christian marriages, and Christian families together. Another application is that this is why our church practices infant baptism. We recognize that we are so utterly dependent on God to uphold his covenant for us. Just like a baby is dependent on his father and mother. It's not up to our or to our children's performance to keep this covenant. And the covenant that God has made with us, we are told in Acts chapter 2, is for us and for our children. And in Genesis 17, God instructs Abram, who is Abraham, who is our spiritual father, and is the original recipient of this covenant, to apply circumcision, which back then was the sign of the covenant, to all his infant male children. Baptism is the new sign of God's covenant, and in obedience to what God commanded Abraham, we apply the sign of the covenant to the children of the covenant, and we do so in faith that God will uphold his covenant promises for them. So now moving into the conclusion of the psalm, Asaph then lays out the newest provision that God has graciously made for his people. And this was probably coming in the days of Asaph, so it was a current event for him. And starting in verse 67, we see God rejects the tribes of Joseph and Ephraim, and in their place he chooses the tribe of Judah. God's sanctuary is moved to Mount Zion in Judah, and David is established there as king. And now we may just read over those, not thinking much of it, but... We have to understand, these are the high points of Israel's history. These are their climactic moments. David's kingship brought unprecedented unity, peace, and prosperity for Israel. And David also brought the ark and the tabernacle to Jerusalem. And as a spiritual leader, he led Israel in a time of true and faithful worship to God. And it was with David also that God chose to make another covenant a covenant in which he promised to establish David's royal line and that one of David's heirs would reign on his throne forever. This was a highly significant moment in Israel's history. And it was an amazing work of God's mercy to provide such a king as David and to make such wild, radical promises to him, especially considering the sordid history that we've just been reminded of in this psalm. They did not deserve a king like David, much less such a covenant. But David's king, so David's kingship was a very hopeful moment. It was a time of great expectation for Israel, but David and his royal line did not live up to that expectation, did they? David sinned greatly, multiple times, in fact, as king, and the consequences for Israel were severe. Then his son Solomon also fell into sin, and as a result, Israel was divided soon after Solomon's death. Their later heirs were also each disappointing in some way, and none of them fulfilled Israel's hopes. None of them met these high expectations, and their sin became so repulsive that God allowed his own people to be conquered and taken away into exile. So, some, so an Israelite reading this psalm, during the reign of the later kings, or especially during Israel's exile in Babylon, they would have been setting their hopes on a future king. A coming king who would meet all those expectations and all those high hopes. And that who would reign on that throne forever. This would be God's Messiah. This is where that term comes from. God's anointed one, His chosen one. The king who would fulfill this covenant. And I'm here to tell you this morning that that Messiah has come. And His name is Jesus Christ. God, in His mercy, has sent us a king greater than David, who has established a greater temple in His own flesh by sacrificing Himself for us. And He has established an even greater throne that rules over the whole earth and even the whole universe. And one day every knee will bow to Him and proclaim Him, Lord. And He offers us, offers us these things freely. They are ours if we will remember and believe. So stop forgetting who you are. Remember that you are a sinner and remember that you have received God's Mercy. Remember that in Christ, God's mercy is for you. Believe that. Right now, and if you are not a Christian, you have rejected God's mercy up until this point. If you have not believed in it, it is not too late. Even now, God will accept you and show you mercy if you confess your sin and turn away from it and put your trust in Jesus. Jesus. So will you acknowledge your sin and ask for God's mercy? Will you remember who you really are? If you are a Christian, then know this, that God's mercy is for you as well. Maybe you've struggled this week. Maybe there is sin that you are struggling to put to death. Maybe you've been battling doubt and stress, even despair. Maybe it's been a rough day Maybe even a rough year or even a rough decade. But God loves you. His mercy is for you. He hasn't left you. And He calls you to remember your sin and to remember the many, many mercies that He has shown you. Remember that from eternity past, God has made a covenant to love you, to redeem you, to forgive you, and to adopt you as His own. You are children the king. So stop forgetting him and remember who you are. Let's pray.